Open your Bibles to the great book of Romans. Last week I mentioned in passing that I found it sort of interesting that the book of Romans, which is the most important book of doctrine ever written, comes to us in the form of a letter. It's not written as a philosophical treatise or a philosophical work, but as a, just a letter to real people. Why would God choose to um, use a letter form to convey such exalted concepts as are contained in these chapters of the book of Romans? Why is much of the New Testament written in letters? Well, I think the reason is that theology is never meant to be an abstraction, some distant thought, some philosophical concept that never comes down to real life. No branch of learning touches real life more than the doctrines of biblical theology. And I think that's why we have it in letter form. Theology can be turned into dry, esoteric, speculative musings of interest only to scholars. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Well, I don't care. Um, things like that. You can get into all that kind of stuff, but that is not the way you find theology anywhere in the New Testament. Bold, cold orthodoxy is just not the New Testament way. Doctrine and life are intimately bound together in the letters of the New Testament. And although Romans is the most systematic of all the New Testament epistles, it is no less personal. It's very personal. Theology is bound up with the author's life and the lives of his hearers, and it has shaped him. The truths he's going to share has shaped him, molded him, directed him, motivated him, and moved him to the depth of his soul. So Paul, as we find him here, is a man of passion, writing to people who are literally in the capital of the ancient world, changing the face of history by their lives and their work on God's behalf. The world will never be the same because those people lived. And it will be much, much better. So the letter form allows us to connect the truth as it lives and breathes in real people's lives. And that's exactly as it should be. For Christianity is much more than a set of dogmas and rules of conduct. Christianity is following heart and soul after Christ. God in human flesh. Christianity is a following of Christ. Dogmas are, are truth statements. They're important. Doctrine is important. To, to, it's important to know the truth about the one you're following. So that's critical. And rules are simply a reflection of his character as we try to imitate him. But doctrine and rules are not the main thing. It's he himself. He is the great reality. The power of a relationship with him is what transforms us and moves us out of ourselves and into service to other people. The reason God wanted Romans to be a letter and not a pamphlet is because of the kind of insight we gather from passages like chapter 1, verse 8 through 15, which just happens to be our text for today. So uh, let's look at that. Paul um, concludes his formal greeting following the forms of letters in verse 7. That's the end of the formal salutation. But before he gets to his thesis, which really starts in verse 16, he writes some very personal comments 
to connect with his readers, to establish a relationship with them by sharing his heart with them. And from Paul we learn, by example, what a mature Christian thinks like and what he feels and what drives him forward. Paul is so secure in Christ as a man that he's very transparent. And you get that really from all of his letters. He's unafraid to share about himself and his internal life. And it's a blessing to us that he felt that kind of liberty because in Paul you can see much of what makes a sinful man into a saint. And since it was, we were told in verse 7 that we are all to be called as saints, God calls every Christian to be a saint. Every Christian is a saint set apart for God's purpose. Then it behooves us to look at this man's life and draw what strength we can from it as an example. So as we saw last time, uh, we're called to be saints, and what does a saint look like? Well, there's seven things you can pick up about Paul just in these few verses here, which he shares with his readers in Rome that really describe a godly life. So let's look at those. First of all, verse 8, Paul was a thankful man. We just sang that hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. Paul was thankful. He says, first, and you know, it's funny in the New Testament because whenever Paul says first, there's never a second. It's part of his run-on sentence problem. It's, first of all, then he just goes on forever. And uh, he never quite gets around to saying second. <clears throat> but he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. You certainly can't avoid the impression when you read Paul's letters that he spent a lot of mental energy, a lot of brain power in thanksgiving. And I'm convinced that a thankful heart explains much of Paul's incredible effectiveness in ministry, literally changing the face of the world, and his resilience to endure so much persecution and opposition in his ministry. And you know, I really feel that my own Christian life, I've really just begun to learn the power of thanksgiving. Because I'm the kind of person that just, well, let's just get out there and do it and not waste a whole lot of time being thankful which is totally wrong, but it's just the way I am, built. But I've learned, especially in the last couple of years, Thanksgiving has a power of transforming your life that doesn't come from other things. It, it is an incredibly powerful thing. The blossoming of the life of Christ in you comes through a thankful heart. To be thankful is to be appreciative of God's plan. And that particularly becomes important when circumstances are not good. But it's also important when circumstances are good. But Paul says in Ephesians to be thankful for all things, and all things give thanks. Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Everything? Yeah. And if you can do that, as Jesus did, you will be like him. Because Christ could be thankful in all circumstances, even as we're talking about in these weeks here um, in the church calendar, his suffering and the opposition that he faced. And Paul did that quite consistently in his own life, always giving thanks. He's the guy, remember, who was clapped into jail in Philippi, chained to a wall, and then the guards could hear him singing praises down you know, through the corridors of the prison. That's the kind of person he was, being thankful in all things. He looked for things to be thankful for. And thanked God even when he couldn't always understand what the purpose was. He was often thankful for other Christians and churches that he had contact with. In fact, all of his letters in the New Testament, except one, 
have some thought of thanksgiving to God for the lives and the ministries of other Christians. Even people with real problems like the Corinthian church, he thanks God for them, even though the whole letter is just blasting them for all the goofy mistakes they're making. But he's thankful for them. The only exception is the letter to Galatians. And that's because in that particular case, regarding them, there was very little to be thankful for because that church was right on the verge of abandoning the gospel and at serious risk of losing the faith altogether. And he did not say, I'm thankful for that. But his thanksgiving to God was then, of course, his God's gracious ability to move towards them and bring them back, which did happen. But as part of his spiritual discipline, Paul found causes to be thankful. And the church in Rome gave him good cause for gratitude. He says, verse 8, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. This church at Rome had an astounding reputation for faith. Everywhere Paul went, in the east, in Asia Minor, in Greece, in Macedonia, he heard about the strength and the vitality of this group of Christians in Rome. And remember, this was a church that was not apostolically founded. Nobody had been there from the Twelve Apostles. Paul had never been there. It, they, it was a collection of Christians that ended up in Rome that started their own church and was doing great. It was resounding. Their strength was resounding throughout the churches throughout the empire. And they're in the capital city of the most powerful empire on earth. So that's an important group of people. They were touching lives of people in important places. Teachers, senators, people even in Caesar's household, it is said in the New Testament, were coming to faith in Christ. So quite a dynamic thing. They were keeping the faith and spreading the word and making a real difference. So Paul was thankful. You know, I have to say, every now and then, somebody I meet tells me that they've heard that our church is a really great place and it's a really solid church and very loving and really grounded in, in, in the truth of Scripture and what a great congregation we have. And, you know, whenever I hear somebody say that, I always think, you know, that's very polite, very kind of you to say that. And sometimes people will stop me and say, no, I mean it. I've really heard. It's a great church. And then I'm really thankful. I mean, it, uh, uh, that's a wonderful thing to know. Makes me very thankful. I've always been thankful for this church, but I'm thankful for any church that holds to sound doctrine and biblical morality and Christian love. And when you have all of those elements together, that's something to really be thankful for. The Roman Christians had that in spades, and they were doing just great. And Paul never fails to express that gratitude to God. And I hope you do too, because that thankfulness is such a critical part of developing that mature spiritual life. Second thing, the second characteristic of Paul, which exemplifies Christian maturity, is the servant's heart, a servant's heart. Paul's main point is that he wants to come and visit the church in Rome, but look how he words it in verse 9. He says, I want to come and see you. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Now, Paul is the kind of guy, he just can't say, God is my witness, how I long to do this. He has to put in all these other phrases. But those phrases are just full of greatness. So don't skip over them. God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness. Whom I serve in my spirit. What a beautiful way to express his inner life. God whom I serve in my spirit. That's exactly what God wants from you. Service from the inside. A heart that serves him. Sometimes it's possible, and boy, I've met people that can really do this, to put on a really 
good show. An incredible external church-wise, good-looking, godly language, all that stuff, and nothing Godward on the inside. It's, it's not that hard to, to achieve that. And um, some years ago, I was counseling with someone who had a, a reputation for godliness, but was turning down a very wrong path, and I went to meet with them and try to get them corrected. And I, I couldn't seem to get anywhere with this person who had this great reputation for being a godly person. Because I assumed, and this is why I wasn't getting anywhere, I assumed that a godly heart would respond humbly to the direction of God's word. I mean, you bring God's word to a godly heart, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. But I wasn't making any progress, so there was no sense or desire to obey God from this person. At all. So I was hearing spiritual mush uh, out of this person's mouth. So finally, I asked the question. I said, could you describe for me what you believe the Christian life is? What is your understanding of what God wants and your relationship to him? And then what came out was a bizarre description of rules and regulations and joyless submission to a cruel God and an oppressive system of religion. And my mouth just dropped open. I couldn't believe it was coming out of this person's mouth. What they thought Christianity was. I was just stunned. And I asked this person who was so proud of that godly reputation, I said, if they, if, I said would you consider the possibility that you have never understood Christianity in your more than 20 years of church life. And I'll never forget what, what this person said. This poor soul said, it's possible, but I'm not interested in pursuing it. That is sad. A genuine Christian serves God in the spirit, inside, first and foremost. Then it works its way out. Do you remember Jesus' words to the woman at the well? John 4.24 God is spirit and those who worship him what? must worship in spirit and truth. So God was a servant in the spirit and that's what we have to be too. Third characteristic of Paul was prayer. Verse 9 God is my witness, he says, with all of that extra stuff. How unceasingly I make mention of you. He was a man of great and continuous prayer, praying for them. A Christian's brain is supposed to exist in an atmosphere of prayer. You should not be able to go for any length of period at all in your mind without prayer being a part of what's going on up there. You should pray when you think and let God be involved in all your deliberations and all your considerations. And believe me, that's a critical aspect of keeping on the straight course spiritually and morally. He's just there all the time. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about this or that without Him. That's true of relationships when you're thinking about them. That's true of work situations when you're thinking about them. It's true of school situations when you're thinking about them. It's true of everything. He's included. So if you're ruminating on something or struggling with something for more than two minutes without bringing him in, you've got a problem. You're probably doing it wrong. Bring him in. Include him. Don't let your mind go without his presence. And if you can't include him, you probably shouldn't be thinking about what you're thinking about. Anyway, so toss it. Isn't that true? Thank you. 
What did our Lord say was the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart? Right, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for other things, other affections. You've probably heard of, you've probably heard of, and probably very few of you have read St. Augustine's Confessions. Maybe if you're in a philosophy class somewhere, you had to read it. It's always in the list. Whenever they have a list of the great books of the Western world, they always have Augustine's Confessions in there. It's very curious. It's called his Confessions, but what it is is his autobiography. It's his life story that he wrote. And it's his life story focusing mainly on spiritual things, but, you know, also where he went and what he did and what he believed and how he lived before he was a Christian and all those kind of things. But every sentence, and the book, it's not a thin book, it's a pretty big book, Augustine's Confessions. And it's really a, a way of sharing philosophy and the truth of the Christian religion through his autobiography is what it is. But every sentence in the book, every sentence is a prayer. If I was telling you my life story and I was St. Augustine, I would say, I grew up in Indiana. You know, O oh Lord, how I moved to California and went to college. I mean, that's the way the book is written. The whole book is a prayer. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking, why in the world is he right? Because, you know, you have, to, you have to learn to read that kind of book because these interjections to God keep breaking up the flow of what he's saying. But then after a while, when you kind of get into the rhythm of it, you're going, you know what? This man's mind prays all the time. That's how he lived. That's why he was such a great um, benefit to the church. An autobiography in the form of prayer. What a great way to write. It's how his mind was. Great thoughts held and considered with an attitude of prayer. That's why Paul's sentences are so crowded. Spiritual truths just intrude themselves into his thoughts all the time. That's why he can't just say, God is my witness. He has to say, God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness. Because... Those truths just crowd into his mind because he always has an attitude of prayer. Be prayerful. Number four, Paul's fourth characteristic is his longing. Longing. Verse 11, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It was not mere duty that took him to Rome's way. He longed for fellowship with them, to give to them, to receive from them. It's very much a part of Paul to want to get to know his fellow Christians and enjoy blessings of love and fellowship. That's who he was. And here again, you see what's going on on the inside. He's not just an, a, a church authority traveling to a certain town. He longs to go to them, to connect with them. If you ever said to Paul, you know, church is such a hassle, it's, it's boring and it's so hard to get there and, and, you know, they have to get up early in the morning and uh, even though I get up much earlier to go to work, but it's still, for some reason, to go to church is such a hassle and they have to, and he would just go, what? I love to go there. What do you mean? How can you say that? There are saints there. Did you know that? There are people that are called of God and they're all gathered together in one room. What a great place to go. He couldn't even imagine thinking, wow, what a chore to go to church. People who have special gifts that God, the creator of the universe, has given them and they're sharing them with each other and, and there's love there and, and opportunities to build up other people there and encourage them and to be encouraged. And Why wouldn't you want to go there? I mean, that's the kind of attitude he would have. He longs for that. What's so boring about that? I long for that. And that leads to the fifth characteristic, which is Paul is purposeful. Purposeful. 
Paul loves Christians and churches because he goes among them in a purposeful way. He has a purpose to it. Verse 11, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you and that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He wants them established. That word means to make firm or strengthen. So he wants to strengthen them. He wants to put them on a rock. He wants to help them be unmovable in the grace and the love of God. Do you come to church with that in mind? Because you should. I'm going to go to church this morning and I'm going to help somebody be strengthened and immovable and strong and established in their Christian walk. I'm going to go there and help somebody else be that way. Well, how can I do that? You can pray with them. You can encourage them. You can talk to them about what God's doing in your life. There's all kinds of ways you can do that. Are you coming here to strengthen other people in their walk? Because you should. That should be the purpose of your heart. Start thinking that way. Who can I encourage today? That's so much better than, oh, we've got to go again and get all the kids together and make sure I look all good and get to church and oh, okay, sing the songs and then hear the sermon. Okay, now we can go home. It's so much better than that. To come and say, God, who do you have here for me today that I can touch, I can speak to, I can, maybe somebody that's lonely or going through a hard time, and I can talk to them or encourage them or share with them or pray with them. It's such a different way of looking at it. Be purposeful in your Christian life. Now, I'm about to take a bunny trail, but since it's almost Easter, bunny trails are totally appropriate. <laughs> Hopping down the bunny. Side note, verse 11. This is a totally another sermon inserted inside this sermon, okay? It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, except it's relevant to this text. So just bear with me, and I'll come back to the sixth thing in a little while, <laughs> okay? Um, Paul's purpose, verse 11, is very interesting. He wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. The word gift in verse 11 is a really fascinating Greek word. It's the word charisma. Now, a whole new concept entered the church world in the 1960s, which is called the charismatic movement. Charismatic. It comes from this word charisma. That's the word he's using. A gift. But it's not just the normal Greek word for gift, which is doron. It's the word charisma. Charis is in that word, and that's the word for grace. Charis is the word for grace. Charisma is a grace gift of God. Before the 1960s, no human being on earth ever spoke of going to a charismatic church or asked anybody, is your church a charismatic church? Or I go to a charismatic church. No, that language was not a part of the church. Now, theologians use the term charismata and stuff because that's part of the New Testament. But the average person didn't walk around saying, is you, are, you go to a charismatic church? It's a, it's a modern phenomenon. It's a phenomenon less than 40 years old. But obviously, it's huge. I mean, if you know anything about modern Christianity, it's very large movement. So the charismatic movement started when activities normally associated with Pentecostals, which started in the 1920s, speaking in tongues and faith healing, leapt in the 1960s, it leapt out of Pentecostalism into a, an Episcopal church. Here in California, actually, I think. And after that, it started spreading into what they call mainstream churches, which are a little more in the liberal end of theology. And then from there, it leapt into evangelical churches. And now it's just everywhere. It's very prominent. Obviously, then, the charismatic movement is very diverse. 
In fact, it actually left into the Episcopal Church and the mainstream churches, then it left into the Catholic Church, then it left into the Evangelical Church, and is part of all of those groups now. So it has no doctrinal coherence at all. It's a movement that has nothing to do with doctrine because you can be anything and be a charismatic. Literally, you can, anything. You know, um, you can pray to tongues to Mary or, or anybody you want. But it does hold one thing in common, and this is the common belief of it, that miraculous gifts that are described in the New Testament, charismatic gifts, are for today. They're supposed to be commonplace. That's the simple doctrine of it. And that's what all these groups share, liberal Protestants, evangelical Protestants, fundamentalists, and Catholics. They, they all have that one thing in common, that they believe these miraculous gifts are for today. Now, there has always been, in a sense, people that have been drawn to this idea all through church history. You can't go through any time in church history where there aren't people that are claiming to have prophetic gifts and tongues and faith healing, all that kind of stuff. But they always, in the past, have fallen into error and were rejected by the, the orthodox churches, the main theologians and pastors and all of that, always, until the 1960s. Now, of course, it's really common, and, it, and it's a very significant part of the church at large. And um, we're not all anti-charismatic people. We got very good personal friends that are totally into that. But we are not a charismatic church. This church is not a charismatic church. Although we don't object if people practice those beliefs in their own personal life. That's your business. But the reason we're not, the reason we're not, is that we reject on biblical grounds the central charismatic idea that miraculous gifts in the New Testament are for today. Now, I don't mean God doesn't do miracles today. God does miracles whenever he wants to. We're talking about a very specific thing, that God gives people miraculous gifts. In other words, if God gave me the gift of healing in the first century, I could walk into a hospital and heal everybody. That's the gift of healing. That I have the power within me, and it's God's power, but it works in me. It's a gift given to me that I can go and heal people. Like Peter walking down the street and his shadow falls on a guy and he's instantly healed. That's a miraculous power. Or I could speak in a language that I've never learned. And if you were German and you're sitting in the back and I, was, I could just start speaking German to you. That's miraculous, right? Or I could do a wonder. You know, shrivel a tree or make a mountain move or those kind of things. Those are, those are miraculous gifts. And not just that God is doing a miracle. For example, Logan over there, it's no question he's a miracle. But um, we all went and prayed for that miracle and God did that miracle. If I had a gift of healing, I would have walked into the hospital and made all of that fixed. I just would have done it. See, that's different than praying and asking God to do a miracle and he does a miracle. God does miracles. But this as a gift is a separate issue, separate idea. So, are those gifts for today? Well, I just opened a huge can of worms, but I'm only going to take out one worm, okay? <laughs> one issue in discussing gifts relates to this idea of apostolic authority. The historic position of Orthodox Christianity is that the apostles, the apostles, were uniquely gifted with miraculous powers to confirm their authority. You understand that? The apostles were uniquely gifted with miraculous powers to confirm their authority. There are many reasons to believe that, but I'm going to give you just a few basic ones for time's sake this morning. Here's the first reason. Paul says very specifically, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that the signs of an apostle were miraculous powers. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs 
and wonders and miracles. Signs and wonders and miracles are the signs of an apostle. Now, it doesn't take a brain, uh, giant brain or a rocket scientist or anything to get this point. If everyone had these powers, they wouldn't be the signs of being an apostle. They would be the signs of being a Christian, right? If every Christian had these powers, they wouldn't be unique to apostles, right? But he says they're unique. What sets a Christian apart from an apostle? Both have gifts, but apostles have gifts that are unique. They are miraculous. Second point. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, says that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. And anybody that builds a building knows you only lay a foundation once. Then you build on it. They did that, and now this is the foundation. And just to that part, that book read this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that the reason the apostles and prophets were given to the church was to reveal the mystery of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles are together in one body. That's the purpose for apostles and prophets. Once they've done that, there's no more need for their ministry. Number three, if you study the book of Acts carefully, and you might want to turn there, chapter 6, if you study the book of Acts carefully in the New Testament epistles, you will notice that only the apostles have these powers, tongues and healings and miracles, and only one other kind of person has them. There's only two kinds of people that have these powers. Apostles and people that the apostles laid their hands on. You understand? You with me so far? Acts chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. The call, that's the first deacon board. They're calling the deacons. They get together these men to solve a certain problem in the church. And it says in verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Just two verses later, in verse 8, Stephen is performing miracles, quote, great wonders and signs among the people. Suddenly, he's doing incredible miracles. Notice also in, uh, in this list of men, Philip. It says Stephen, a man full of, and then it says Philip. If you turn to Acts chapter 8, you see Philip's ministry. Verse 6, Acts 8, 6, The multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them. That's another one, casting out evil spirits. Shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, if you recall Acts chapter 8, you remember there's a guy named Simon the Sorcerer. Simon was a magician, a sorcerer, a wonder worker who really was a tricker because they didn't really have real powers, right? But people believed that they could work wonders because they did whatever, you know. Nothing up here, nothing up here, nothing up here, those kind of things. And uh, uh, Simon saw Philip doing real miracles and things that Simon couldn't do because they were real miracles. He couldn't figure out the trick, you know. And he was utterly amazed. And it says in verse 13, as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And he got baptized. He let Philip baptize him. He professed Christ. He got baptized because he wanted to get on the inside of this power. 
constantly amazed at the signs and miracles taking place. Now watch what happens in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, Philip's in Samaria. This is the first time the gospel's gone there. They sent them Peter and John. Who are Peter and John? They are... Very good. Apostles. Good. That's right. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. Then they began laying their hands on them. Right? And they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This isn't what we think of as when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. This is a visible thing, obviously. He could see the Holy Spirit coming into the, these people's lives enough to like, that's, that's a power I want to purchase. Philip couldn't do that. Philip could do all the miracles, but he couldn't pass them on. But when Peter and John get there, so, you know, Simon never offered Philip money because he just saw Philip doing miracles. But when Peter, Peter and John come, they're laying their hands on people, and then they start doing miracles. He can give this power away. Philip couldn't do that. Peter and John can do that. So he offers them money. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and he blasts them. When did people have visible signs of the Holy Spirit on them? When apostles laid their hands on them. Philip couldn't do it. He couldn't pass on his powers. Only apostles could do that. So that's the main idea there. So what? What's the point? I'm not done yet. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're still in the bunny trail. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This chapter is all about charismata, charismatic gifts, grace gifts. And Paul is mainly dealing with the problem of jealousy and superiority in the use of these gifts. Because, you know, well, I can raise the dead. Well, yeah, but I can speak in tongues. Yeah, well, whatever. People were like comparing gifts and envying other, other people for having different gifts than they had. So in verse 7, he says, real simply, he says, everybody has a gift. Every Christian has a gift. And then from verse 14 all the way through tw verse 27, he builds this whole argument on the idea of the human body. You have many parts. If you were all fingers, it would be really hard to walk places. And if you were all ears, you couldn't speak. You know, I mean, bodies have different parts and they work together. That's his whole argument. But I want you to see the list of gifts in verse 28, okay? After he makes that argument, he says, Now, God has appointed in the church, verse 28, first, apostles, then prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Then he says, all are not apostles, all are not prophets, all are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? What do you notice about that? list of spiritual gifts. They're pretty miraculous. There's only a couple of things mentioned that are not directly miraculous. For the most part, it's a very miraculous list. Tongues, healings, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, apostleship, that's considered a gift too. Um, miracles, gifts of healing, 
various kinds of tongues. Now, look at Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, he's making exactly the same argument. We're all members of a body. We all have different gifts. We all have different jobs in the body of Christ. Making exactly the same point, And then he gives a list of gifts. Look at verse 4. Just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. Now, look at this list of gifts, starting in verse 6 there. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. Or he who gives, with liberality. Or he who leads, with diligence. Or he who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. What's different about that? What's missing from that list? Do you see anything? Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and showing mercy. Except for prophecy, which is a totally separate than a hand-bestowed gift. That's a directly bestowed gift on certain people to speak the truth that we talked about earlier. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. They give revelation. But other than that one, they're all what? Normal, everyday gifts. They're just as important as other gifts, but these are common grace gifts given to all people that are not tied to apostolic power. Now, that said, there's no tongues, there's no miracles, there's no gifts of healing mentioned here. Why are they not on the list? Why are these two lists so different? Well, what did we say was unusual about the church at Rome? Just like Samaria in Acts chapter 8, before the apostles came, before Peter and John came, the church at Rome was not an apostolically founded church. No apostle had ever been there. Corinth was founded by Paul. He lived there for months and months. He was laying his hands on people all the time. But in Rome... No apostle had ever been there. And that's the point. Where there were no apostles, no miraculous gifts could be granted because those gifts were, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle. No one, not everyone had them, only apostles or those who got them from the apostles directly. And those who got them could not pass them on. So if someone like Philip showed up at Rome, he could do wonders there, but he couldn't grant that gift to other people. But he could tell them where he got it. And where did he get it? From an apostle. What's the point of all that? It points all the authority back to the apostles because they are bringing the revelation from God. They have the highest position in the church. Every question of doctrine or issue that comes up has to be addressed by an apostle for an authoritative answer. So miracles supported their authority. That was all part of laying the foundation of new revelation, the mystery of the gospel. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that's why he says tongues will cease. And they did. When that generation died out that knew the apostolic touch, by the time you're in the second century, the church fathers are writing about tongues as though it was a long ago distant thing. And they don't come back. 
that's why modern tongues, with all due respect, is so inferior in nature to that described in the New Testament because it's not the same thing. Anybody can speak in tongues when it's not a real language. Anybody can do that. Mormons do that. Um, Bantu uh, holy men do that in the jungle. I mean, it's not hard to put yourself in a condition to speak a nonsense language and feel like it's an spiritual experience. Lots of religions do that. But that's why we're not a charismatic church. So, what does Paul want to do in Romans chapter 1, verse 11? He says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's what he's talking about. I'm an apostle. When I get there, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to impart spirit charismata to you. I'm going to give you guys grace gifts. And I studied that word impart very carefully. And it can have the meaning of just sharing something that belongs to you with somebody else. But generally it has the meaning of giving somebody something for them to possess. That's what that word means. It's actually not used much in the New Testament, this particular form of the word. One example of the way it's used is in Luke 3.11, Jesus says, Let he who has two tunics share with him who has none. Give him one. Right? Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, I think it is, or chapter 4, he's writing about, at the end of chapter 4, he's writing about thieves, and he says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his own hands, producing what is good, so that he might have an abundance to impart to others what he's earned, so he can give to other people, so they can possess some of what he's earned. So Paul will impart gifts to them, I believe, sign gifts, and they will share their gifts with him. What are their gifts? Giving, mercy, service, encouragement, helps, all those other gifts that are the Roman church possessed. Okay, big detour is over. We're hopping off the bunny trail. Number six. <laughs> Sixth characteristic, indebtedness. Paul felt uh, a strong sense of indebtedness. Romans chapter 1, verse 13 I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I may obtain some spiritual fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That idea of under obligation is just a normal word for being in debt to. Paul feels a strong obligation in driving him forward an indebtedness, if you will, to all the Gentile peoples of the world. Because God gave him that commission. When Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he told him that his mission was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he feels this indebtedness to Gentiles to bring them the gospel that Christ commanded him to bring. And he says, to all Gentiles, to Greeks and the barbarians. Now, Greek culture, if you were a cultured person in the Roman Empire, you were into Greek culture. If you were not in the Greek culture, you were a barbarian. So when he says a Greek and a barbarian, anybody that wasn't Greek, not, you didn't have to be nationally Greek, but it, you had to be into Greek civilization, Greek philosophy, Greek architecture, and all that kind of stuff, the arts. That was a, that's a Greek, and everybody else is a barbarian. You're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. You know, I mean, that's, that was it. So that's an, that's an inclusive way of describing everybody, the Greeks and the barbarians. To the wise and to the simple. Everybody, both to the wise and to the foolish. He, he didn't limit himself to certain classes or certain groups. Everybody was to be brought the gospel. He had this obligation in his heart to take it to them. Whatever, um, whatever condition of life he could find them in. So Paul has an equal compassion 
for the philosopher and the most uneducated slave. He wants to reach all classes of people in every place. And so his desire to spend some time in Rome, the Gentile capital, the moving point of the world, the place where all roads lead to Rome, you know, that was really what they said in those days. He wants to go there too and uh, fill his debt, if you will, to them to bring them the gospel. Number seven, he's eager or you could translate it, he's ready to go. Verse 15. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. I've reached every kind of people from all classes and types that I can reach. I've been everywhere throughout Asia Minor. I've been all throughout Greece. I've been all throughout Macedonia, Bithynia, all these incredible places in the Roman Empire, Palestine. Um, I've wanted to go other places, but I, the Lord forbade me, but he's been pushing me in this European direction. So I'm ready to go. And he says, well, I've never been to Rome. And when I'm going to go there, he talks about at the end of the book of Romans, he says, I'm going to Spain, because nobody's been there yet. I'm taking the gospel there. He says, but on the way, I want to go to Rome. And I'm going to be there soon. He says, he just has his desire. He's eager. He's passionate. It's the passion and joy of his life to fulfill the calling of Christ our Savior. You don't have to drag Paul to his next preaching opportunity. He's ready to go, ready to fulfill his work. So let's, let's bring all these qualities together. Paul's life was characterized by thankfulness in all situations. He had a servant's heart. as he approached his life. He had a desire to fulfill his obligations to those he was called upon to reach, and he was ready to do the task. Do you think you were, have anything you can aim for this morning? You should. The good news of Jesus Christ, when received for what it really is, changes us. It, it transforms our thinking. It retools or reworks our spirits. It literally awakens our hearts to a whole new realm of living. That is the power of God in the gospel. And that's the subject for next week, verse 16 and 17. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's life. What a great example he was. What a great teacher, not only by his words, but by um, the focus of his life. An incredible man. May we have his passion and his wisdom to know how to apply truth in life situations, Lord. We just pray that you would grant us that same mercy. Keep us ever in a prayerful frame of mind. Let us never exclude you from our thoughts. Let us be purposeful in our Christian life, in our religious activity. May it not be mere activity, but a purposeful attempt to minister the gifts that you've given us to other people to encourage and establish them and make your church strong. We thank you so much and we just appreciate so much the power of the word of God. What a great truth there is in it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.